Today, I want to touch on some broader themes that are in this chapter as a whole. Uh, and then the following weeks, probably two weeks, uh, we'll kind of zoom in more on what's going on with the particulars and the details. But today, we're going to be looking more at broad themes and uh, typologies and things like this. And then we'll, we'll move on to uh, more particular things. So one of the first things that we can uh, start out here is uh, we're leaving off from the previous story of Judah, and we can compare Joseph to Judah, and we can recognize immediately that there is a stark contrast. Remember, uh, we begin uh, Jacob's uh, history. We're told this is the history of Jacob, and then what do we immediately uh, see? We see a story of Joseph going to check on his brothers. And then uh, they, they kill him, figuratively. They sell him into slavery. And then it's like a movie. It like cuts to a different scene. And the different scene is Judah. And we see Judah just totally punning it into the stands, right? He, he messes it up. And then it cuts back to Joseph. Meanwhile, back in Egypt. So that's what we're at right now. We're back in Egypt right now looking at uh, Joseph. And what Moses is doing by doing this is he's putting these two brothers in parallel. We're, to, we're specifically to compare them to each other. We're to say, what, what, what's the differences between these? How are they alike? How are they similar? What can we learn? And one of the things, one of the themes that we have is the theme of chastity and unchastity. And uh, we see here that Judah is unchaste. Uh, he lies with a harlot. Joseph is chaste. He resists a harlot. Uh, Judah repeats Genesis 6. If you remember Genesis 6, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they went into them. It was this unlawful union that occurred. And we see that Judah is repeating this kind of thing. He's a son of God. He sees a daughter of men and he commits this unlawful union. Joseph is a son of God and he sees a daughter of men and she comes on to him and he successfully resists her. Joseph is reversing Genesis 6. We start to see a son, of, a son of God being faithful, where we have seen previously them failing. <clears throat> Second, we can look at these brothers in terms, so we looked at it in terms of chastity. Uh, this, means, this means sexual purity or impurity. Judah was impure, Joseph was sexually pure. We can look at it in terms of power. Uh, Judah is losing power. Joseph is increasing in power. Judah loses his authority. He gives it away. Remember, he has the staff and he has the signet. Judah, these things represent everything that he owns. It represents his authority, a staff particularly, and then the signet was his property and then his authority over it. He gives it away. Joseph receives. He receives these things. He receives authority. It's given to him. Others are giving him this authority. Judah is impoverished, Joseph prospers. And then we see that chastity and power are connected if we compare them both to Samson. Samson, he becomes unchaste, he loses his strength. Uh, we read about Samson uh, in the lectionary readings. Uh, Judah was unchaste, he loses his authority. Uh, uh, Joseph is chaste, he gains his authority. Uh, Samson 
One of the things that came to mind as uh, uh, Mr. Lawson was reading the lectionary is Samson. One of the things that we're going to see here with uh, Joseph, Samson's failing to die the whole thing. He's dying bad deaths. He's, he's giving in to sin. But at the end of his life, he finally dies a good death. And what we see with Joseph is Joseph dies a faithful, good, uh, figurative death throughout his life, which gives him these kinds of authorities. And connected to this is the word hand. Our translation, the New King James, kind of uh, masks this over. We don't see this very well. But the word hand is all over the place. It occurs nine times in the Judah narrative. It occurs... Um, uh, uh, or nine times in the Joseph narrative. Seven times in Judah's narrative. Um, and from a natural standpoint, we can just think about what a hand does. A hand grabs onto things. A hand can punch uh, it has the authority to possess things, to hold on to something. I, I have this in my hand. I own it. It's mine. Um, some commentators have made a connection between the five digits that we have in our hands and when the uh, Israelites came out of uh, Israel or Egypt in rows of five. There's a, it says in battle array, but the Hebrew word there has its link to the word five. And some have made a connection between five in authority, five in power, five in hands. Um, Judah, he has his staff and his signet in his hand. They leave his hand. He gives it away. Joseph has everything from Potiphar put under his hand. It's translated for us, put under his authority, but it's put in his hand. Um, the prison warden puts the prisoners in his hand. Um, and then even, even when it's taken away, uh, even when it's taken away, the brothers try to take things out of Joseph's hand. God gives it back to him. God gives him even more. Potiphar's wife tries to take something out of his hand. God starts increasing him and will eventually give him even more. <clears throat> and then in Judah's story, the word hand appears uh, many times. It's with Judah specifically. You have one time with his friend, uh, Hira. And then the last time, it appears like four or five times with what? Where is there a hand prominent in Judah's story? Nope. Besides that, that's with Judah. It's with another person. A little baby. Zerah. Remember Zerah and Perez? Zerah, he stuck his hand out when he was being born, and then he drew it back in. And when he stuck his hand out, the midwife put a scarlet thread around it. What I think Moses is doing there is giving us a preview of what's going to happen with Joseph. He's like, pay attention to what's happening with hands. Scarlet thread around the hand, which, of course, culminates in... Christ's hands who are wrapped in scarlet threads as well. But, but with Christ, he has his hands pierced, but he also has authority given to, his, to him as well. He receives in his hand, and we see this with Joseph. So I think Zerah is kind of this preliminary into what we're going to see with Joseph. It might be, uh, I've, I, I think about it as Zerah kind of being this whisper of the Messiah, and Joseph is the shout of the Messiah. Joseph's typology is shouting Christ at every turn. The word all, if you notice prior to uh, the Sursum Corda, I was emphasizing the word all. The word all appears seven times. Um, the Lord made all he did prosper in his hand. All that Potiphar had he put into Joseph's hand. The keeper of the prisoner gave all the prisoners into Joseph's hand. 
The word all is appearing here. It's comprehensive. It's exhaustive. And in its Christological expression, where do we see all things given to Jesus? All authority, right? All authority in heaven and earth is given to Christ as he uh, ascended his throne. He's not just given all authority over an affluent uh, Egyptian's uh, home. He's not just given all authority uh, over the king's prison, but he's given all authority not only over uh, all, all uh, nations, like e uh, Joseph kind of was, given all authority over Egypt, but uh, Jesus is given all authority over all nations, and he's given all authority uh, in heaven as well. Joseph's ascendancy and increasing dominion it follows a post-millennial trajectory. So it's often people mischaracterize post-millennialism. The mischaracterization was, would be Joseph goes from shepherd boy to king of Egypt and nothing else. Or it's just a straight shot with no setbacks or no descents or no uh, problems along the way. He doesn't go from being a store clerk to being the secretary of state without issue. But there are problems along the way. There are setbacks. But even in these setbacks, they're not really setbacks. God is providential over them. And he's using them to set it up for further ascendancy. Joseph is given a certain amount of authority over his brothers. Go check on your brothers and come back to me. And then we have a setback, right? They kill him. He goes into a pit. He's in slavery. He's going down. He's going down into Egypt. Oh, man. And then that sets him up in Potiphar's house where he gains authority. Some of the some early Egyptian manuscripts have uh, these houses have some, somewhere upwards of 80 servants. It's, it's likely Joseph was overseeing over 80, 80 servants here. So he ascends. And then we have this, this instance with Potiphar's wife wrongfully accused. And then he descends again. But what's this doing? This is putting him in contact with people who are in contact with the king, with Pharaoh, which is ultimately setting him up for even further ascendancy. This is a post-millennial trajectory with its, uh, with its ups and its downs, but it's ultimately up. Amen. So we have this trajectory with Joseph's life. This is the trajectory of Genesis. This is the trajectory of the Bible. It is a trajectory of all things. Now, if I were to ask you, what does a descent-ascent pattern show us scripturally? If we were to describe this with biblical terms, how would you describe it? Using biblical categories, descent-ascent. Very good. Very good. Nailed it. Death and resurrection. Post-millennial eschatology operates on the death-resurrection principle. It truly believes that a seed, when it dies and goes into the ground, will bring fruit. That it will come out and it will produce fruit. Joseph had to go into the ground and die in the Dothan pit before he could be a palm tree in Potiphar's house. He had to go and die in the king's prison before he could be an oak tree in the king's house, in Pharaoh's house. Death and resurrection. Death and dying is necessary for living. It's necessary for ruling. It's necessary for dominion, which is also kind of a popular criticism of postmillennialism. 
Uh, there's no suffering, which I, I'm preempting here, because these are not actually literal deaths that are happening. How else would we describe this? It's suffering. Through suffering, Joseph is raised. It's part and parcel to the way that God has structured the world. It's part and parcel to uh, post-millennialism. Furthermore, Joseph's descent into Egypt, uh, it foreshadows what's going to happen to Israel as a nation. Joseph is initially, we might even say, warmly received. Potiphar is pleased with him so much so that he elevates him to uh, the head of his uh, servants. Joseph's family, the rest of the Israelites, are going to be received initially well into Egypt. Joseph, at some point, descends into prison, and the, and the rest of Israel will descend into slavery. And both of these things are setting them up for rule later. Joseph, as king, Israelites coming back into Canaan and exercising rule over Canaan, culminating in King David, Solomon, things like this. And all of this, of course, foreshadows Christ's passion, his death on the cross, his descent into Hades, which he's preaching to prisoners in Hades, which is, I think, also anticipated here with Joseph's descent into a prison. And then his ascent to his heavenly throne next to, the God, next to God the Father. Christ's descent into the earth is necessary for him to be crowned king on his throne. And so it is with you. So it is with the saints. So it is with the church. You are going to be presented with hard things. You are going to have people say false things about you that are completely untrue. Amen. And you're going to be persecuted for it. You're going to be imprisoned for it. And Joseph maintains his integrity in all of it. He doesn't, he, he doesn't wallow in pity. What does he do when he's in Potiphar's house? He's the best slave on the block. He could just sit there and be, my brothers abandoned me. They sold me into slavery. And cry about it like so many people do, wallowing in self-pity for the bad things that have happened to them. That's not what Joseph does. That's not what the saints are called to. God's sovereign over all of this. It says this multiple times in the text. The Lord is with Joseph. I've also thought about the twofold nature of, of Joseph's uh, deaths here. How many times does Joseph figuratively die in this story, in the whole story that we've read so far? What are the two prominent deaths? Good, very good. How many is that? Okay. And he ascends out of both of those. How might we apply this to the Christian life? Where do these two deaths and two resurrections occur? Right. Yeah, very good. I, um, I think this might be anticipating something like this as well. Baptism, we die, we resurrect in Christ. But then there's a final judgment. We are going to physically die, and then Christ is going to raise the dead, and we are going to be raised again with him if you trust in him and obey him. Okay. There's two more things here. Two more things, and then we'll finish. A very prominent theme here is Joseph as a new Adam. Joseph is in a new garden. 
The new garden is Potiphar's house. Joseph, like Adam, has access and authority to everything except this one thing, except this one tree. Potiphar's house is the garden. Potiphar's wife is the tree of knowledge. Don't touch this. Adam fails here. Joseph succeeds. Potiphar's wife is simultaneously the fruit, the forbidden fruit, the serpent, and the woman. She embodies all three of these. Joseph resists all three of them. He succeeds where Adam failed. So we start to see at the end of Genesis, there's a new Adam who's going to succeed where Adam had failed. And a lot of the patriarchs had failed too. Noah's in a new garden and he fails. Uh, there's all kinds of, we've done this multiple times, the patriarchs are failing and failing in these new gardens. Joseph has succeeded. And what this shows us is that Joseph is shouting the typology of Christ. There is going to be a true second Adam who is going to do these things perfectly and who will truly physically die and who will truly physically resurrect and who will rule all things and he will have all things given to him. Say again. Yes, right. That's a great, that's a, yeah. Joseph is Adam 1.5, right. Almost there. That's great. And lastly, this is the last point. Um, God is showing us, he's showing us that he's going to save all nations in, in a couple of ways. This is, this is promised through Abraham, right? Through your seed, you're going to bless all the families of the earth. All the nations of the earth are going to, are going to be blessed through you. We see that with Joseph here. First, with Potiphar. Potiphar's house is blessed because of Joseph. We see that. We see it also with Joseph in his ascendancy, saving not only Egypt, but the world through star from starvation. But we also see it in a typology here. This is a more uh, oblique way or a more cryptic way. But we see it that God is showing us that he still sees Hagar. Remember when Hagar was in the wilderness, he says, he said, I see you. I'm the God who sees. He still sees Hagar because Joseph is a, is a Hagar here. He's having Joseph go through what Hagar went, to, went through. Hagar is an Egyptian slave abused at the hands of her Hebrew mistress. Joseph is a Hebrew slave abused at the hands of his Egyptian mistress. He's, God is having his people identify with the people of the world, the slaves, the foreigners. He's conflating these two categories, which again is Adam and the new Adam being, being brought uh, together. But he's identifying. He's identifying. He's saying, I see you. I'm going to go through what you have gone through. I too have been exiled. I too have been mistreated by my mistress. I too have been all of these things. And so just as Jesus can sympathize with us, uh, he can identify with us in every uh, aspect uh, uh, except with committing sin. Same, that's what Joseph is going through with uh, here uh, in terms of Hagar. And so this is reassuring. Um, he's having his servant... Joseph go through the same sufferings uh, as Hagar. He's identifying with her, and ultimately he's redeeming her is what this is about. And it's another way of saying that he's going to redeem us. So let's pray.
The charge is a paraphrase from St. Peter. Do good and suffer. Patiently endure it. This is a commendable thing in the sight of God. And in due time, God will exalt you. May God give you the dew of heaven, the fatness of the earth, the abundance of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.